During my two years at Arlington National Cemetery, I was there as an Air Force chaplain to do Air Force funerals. One of the most memorable and notable funerals that I conducted was for one of the last living Tuskegee Airmen. The story of the Tuskegee Airmen is inspiring. They belong to the 332nd Fighter Group and the 477th Bombardment Group of the Army Air Corps in the days before our United States Air Force was birthed. They were nicknamed Red Tails after the group painted the tails of their aircraft red. These airmen became famous for two reasons. First, they were the first black military aviators in the United States Armed Forces. But they also hold a special place in American military history because of their unmatched faithfulness to the mission. In the European Air War, U.S. bombers were getting shot down at an alarming rate. The problem arose when the enemy attacked. Fighter pilots protecting the bombers would leave the bombers to engage the enemy aircraft. In so doing, it left the bombers vulnerable to attack. With every bomber shot down, 10 or more lives perished. The Tuskegee Airmen were brought in and were given a different strategy. Never, ever leave the bomber. Never. Regardless of what was happening around them, when the enemy attacked, they were to stay the course, to hold fast, to defend their bomber. The result? Only 25 of the hundreds of bombers they protected were lost. Their reputation became a legend. If you flew a bomber, you wanted the Red Tails with you. In George Lucas's 2012 film, Red Tails, the Tuskegee Airmen gather around each other on an airstrip and they shout their mantra, the last plane, the last bullet, the last man, the last minute, we fight. These airmen are celebrated still nearly 80 years later, not just because of being the first black aviators in milita our U.S. military history, and not just because they were excellent pilots, but because they never, ever wavered from their duty. They never left their mission. They never abandoned their charge. No matter what happened, they remained faithful to their calling. I wonder if the same could be said of you and I and will be said of you and I when we meet our Savior and Lord. Were we faithful to our mission, regardless of what was going on in the world around us? Did we stay the course even when the threat was intense? Did we remain faithful to Jesus Christ no matter what? This morning, we're going to look at a church that did exactly that. We are in week number six of a seven-week series on Jesus' letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And this morning, we're going to continue that series by looking at the letter to the church in Philadelphia. Before we read the text, let's set the context by thinking a little bit about the city of Philadelphia for just a few moments so that when you hear God's word, it will take on increased meaning. Because our country has a city named Philadelphia, you probably already know the meaning of the name Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. The city was named such because of the bond that existed between a king and his brother. It was founded approximately 200 years before the birth of our Savior. 
Philadelphia sat in an important location on a road that connected the Roman Empire with the Far East. In fact, that road was of such importance and its location so strategic that today there's a railway there that connects that region to the Far East. It's also important to know that there was a volcano near this city. Because of that, this area experienced frequent earthquakes. One of the worst of those earthquakes that's been recorded was in the year AD 17, and it killed as many as 16,000 people in the region. It had nearly leveled Philadelphia. As far as industry, Philadelphia was a lead producer of grapes. Even today, the region derives much of its livelihood from the production of grapes. I read somewhere that as much as 25% of the world's raisins actually come from this, this region. So if you had a bowl of raisin brand this morning, there's a one in four chance that your grapes were produced there. Let me also share some information that will be important as you open the text. First, after that earthquake I told you about, survivors moved out of the city, Philadelphia proper, into the countryside. They left the city because the earthquake had so rattled its walls and foundation that both were unstable and they were cracked. People were frightened that lived in Philadelphia of what might happen if another earthquake hit. They moved into huts in the surrounding communities and surrounding countryside, and they would only return to the city of Philadelphia to conduct business. Second, on at least two occasions, emperors had given money to the city of Philadelphia to rebuild itself. As a form of gratitude, they had renamed themselves. However, those new names never stuck. So they had a bit of an identity crisis as citizens of Philadelphia. Are we Philadelphia? Are we Neo-Caesarea? Are we Flavia? No one could really figure it out. And so when you were asked where you were from, you weren't sure what to say. There was confusion about their identity. Third, the citizens were losing faith and had lost faith in the emperor. They had given him the title, the son of the Holy One, but he had destroyed their livelihood by ordering that the vineyards in the region be cut down and corn be grown in its place. Apparently, in so doing, he made some promises to the citizens about their livelihood, about their income, guaranteeing that everything would be okay, but his plan failed dramatically because corn doesn't grow well in volcanic soil. And as a result, the economy of the region was devastated. He couldn't keep his promises, and the people lost faith in the emperor. They didn't trust him to keep his word. They didn't see him as one who was principled. And finally, Philadelphia was established as a missionary city of sorts. Now, I'm not talking about missionary as in the gospel. I'm talking about missionary as in culture. You see, Philadelphia sat on the edge of the highlands of Lydia and Phrygia, and the founders of this city saw this unique position as an opportunity for the people that lived in Philadelphia to be spreading Roman culture to the lands beyond them. Rome saw Philadelphia and its citizens as missionaries to be taking the ideas and to be spreading the empire. Let's look then at the text. We're in Revelation chapter 3 this morning, verses 7 through 13. Would you stand again for the reading of God's word? And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. 
I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading from his holy word. You may be seated. If you want to follow along in your outlines this morning, there are several things to fill in because this text is jam-packed full of content. I'd encourage you to do that. We're going to be looking at three main areas, at Christ's character, Christ's commendations to the city of Philadelphia, and finally, Christ's counsel. You'll notice today that there is no criticism in this letter. There are no condemnations. In fact, the city of Philadelphia is one of only two churches that receive no harsh critique from Jesus. Of note also in this letter is the fact that there are more promises in this letter than any of the other letters. Look then at how Christ identifies himself. First, we find that he is pure, He identifies himself as the Holy One. Now remember, Philadelphia has given the title, the Son of the Holy One, to the Emperor. And Jesus comes along and says, I am the Holy One. The word holy means set apart. It means other than. It means different. It refers to Jesus' deity. And even the demons who were cast out by Jesus Christ knew that he was the Holy One. In Mark 1, 24, and Luke 4, 34, as examples, they call out to him, the Holy One of God. See, Christ is different than you and I, because you and I are born with the stain of original sin, but Jesus Christ, who was God, who was without sin, yet he became sin for us. He is the Holy One. He is pure. Like the empire, emperor, He is the pure one. Second, we find he is principled. He's principled. The text says he is the true one. That title is set against an emperor who is unfaithful, who's not true to his word, who has let down his people and not been able to keep the promises that he made to keep their, make their lives better. Jesus says, I'm authentic. I am legitimate. In John 14, 6, not only does he identify himself as embodying truth, but Jesus actually says he is truth. While the emperor cannot be counted on to be principled, cannot be counted on to keep his word, Jesus is the truth. He's principled. Third, he's powerful. The text continues, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. 
This is a reference to the Old Testament book of Isaiah in which we're told about Shebna, a servant of King Hezekiah, who held a key, as it were, to the presence of the king. You see, you couldn't just walk in and see the king. No, you had to get access to the king, and Shebna controlled that access. If Shebna said you could have audience with the king, the door was opened for you to see the king. If he said you could not have an audience, the door was closed. Well, Shebna abused that authority for his own gain to make a name for himself, and he was removed from that position. The key of David was taken from him, and he was replaced by Eliakim, who would be faithful. So in our text, we're told that Jesus has this key of David. The allusion here is to the kingdom of God. Jesus serves as the keeper of of the gate, the doorkeeper for the kingdom. Jesus Christ controls admission. And what's more, Jesus said, not only do I control the gate, I am the doorway. I am the gate through which my sheep enter to eternal life. And I have sole and absolute authority over who gets in and who doesn't. We're going to see on another level of interpretation regarding these open doors in just a few moments. But before we look at that, fourth, we see about Christ that he is personal. He's personal. The text continues in verse 8, I know your works. As has been the case in every letter so far, Jesus is intimately involved and knowledgeable of the happenings and the inner life of the church to which he writes. It doesn't matter if the church is successful. It doesn't matter if they are gospel-centric or whether they're a zombie church like we saw last week. Jesus knows the church. He knows the names of its members. He knows their hearts. You see, my friends, we serve a Lord who isn't absent from our lives, but is instead personally invested in them. A God who doesn't just wind us up like a mechanical toy and let us run. Rather, we serve a God who is intimately involved in the very details of our comings and our goings. We serve a Savior who is near to the brokenhearted. A God who, while we often don't understand why he doesn't prevent evil from occurring, a God who is always close to those who hurt and those who suffer. Church, I think it's important for us to remember just how personal of a God we serve in light of the school shooting this week. God wasn't absent from that classroom as those precious lives were snuffed out. It may seem like it, but remember in moments like these that we serve a God who is personally involved in our lives. Cling to that faith even when you don't understand the heartache and the pain around you. Find hope in the knowledge that our Savior has never left us alone and will one day destroy the evil that mars this place. It is that Savior, it is that God who walks then among these seven churches and observes with his own two eyes the works of the church in Philadelphia because he's personally involved. The pure, the principled, the powerful, and the personal Jesus Christ then commends this church. Look at your text again, if you have it open, to the three things he commends them for. I'd suggest these are three marks of a faithful church. First, we find God-given opportunities. Jesus says, I have set before you an open door. 
Now, he's already, we've read, uh, identified himself as the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. But now, not only is he the one who is the gate through which we must enter the kingdom, but Jesus tells this church that they have been given doors of opportunity Remember now, they're on a very important road to the Far East. They have an opportunity to encounter the lost and be missionaries to them. This city had its, has as its mission by Rome the charge, the expectation of spreading Roman culture to the furthest peoples. And Jesus says, you also have an open door to the gospel, an opportunity to spread the good news. It's been put there by God himself. Paul picked up on this same theme in 1 Corinthians 16.9 and in Colossians 4.3, reminding us of doors of opportunity that God opens for people to respond to the gospel. Jesus' second commendation and the second mark of a faithful church we find here is a pattern of obedience to the word. Jesus continues in verse 8, I know that you have little power, but yet you have kept my word. This church apparently wasn't large. They weren't influential. They didn't have a seminary-trained pastor or a preacher who was, was skilled in the latest oratory skills. They didn't have an expansive theological library of books and commentaries to study from, and yet they were faithful to obedience in the word. Beyond that, this church didn't have a robust missions budget, I guess, or state-of-the-art sound system. I doubt that they had the people and the resources to be sending missions teams out into the highlands, and yet they were faithful. In their weakness, this church had not only steadfastly obeyed God's word, they were also marked by an obdurate faith. The word obdurate means stubbornly refusing to change one's opinion or course of action. And Jesus says to this church, even though you have but little power, you have not denied my name. Unlike Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, who was seemingly powerless and outnumbered and denied the name of Christ three times, the Church of Philadelphia, while weak and absolutely outnumbered, stubbornly refused to give in. They would not deny the name of Jesus Christ. They would not worship the emperor. They refused to compromise their ways. And when the pressure was applied and they were tempted to deny their faith, they held steadfast. Well, these are not inclusive of every mark of a faithful church. I'd suggest to you that if you want to see whether a church is being faithful, these are three telltale indicators. Whether there are, there are clear God-given opportunities in front of them, whether in spite of apparent little strength it has a pattern of obedience to God word, God's word, and whether it refuses to deny the name of Christ. If those three things are present in our church and in any church, I'd suggest there's a strong chance that we're being faithful. Let's go back to the text again as we see Jesus' counsel in this church. We're going to pick up in verse 9. First, we find his recompense, his recompense. Listen to what Jesus says. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Well, God had placed an open door before them, and while they had remained obedient to his word and faithful to his name, it wasn't without opposition. Jesus says this opposition is coming from the synagogue of Satan. 
Now, I have a feeling that the synagogue of Satan didn't name themselves as such. No one uses Satan in their church's name. You've probably never come across the Church of Satan, the Fellowship of Satan, the United Church of Satan. You never want the name Satan attached to your church sign. Apparently, these people are those that Jesus says are actually of Satan. And he doesn't pull any punches. Apparently, they're discouraging the church in Philadelphia from walking through these doors of opportunity. And one day, these enemies, says Jesus, whoever they were, would be forced to acknowledge that Christians were faithful and that they were right. They're going to have to admit that Christians knew God and they didn't. They will then know that God loves these Philadelphian Christians. You see, my friends, when we are faithful to God's word and his name, God will take care of our battles. Second, we see his rescue, Jesus' rescue. Verse 10 continues, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. This verse has been the subject of a My mic just keeps on cutting out. Let's try this new one here. We're not going to let this technology get in the way of God's word, are we? So this verse has been the subject of a lot of debate. Jesus was clear in his ministry on earth that we would face trials, that we would face persecution. In Revelation 6 through 19, we read of a time of tribulation that is awaiting fulfillment. And what seems to be unclear is whether the original text meant to keep from or to keep through. The two words mean entirely different things. And these contrasting interpretations have been a big subject of debate in the church for decades and centuries. Some say the church will be kept from tribulation. Others say the church will be kept through tribulation. But however we interpret it, it's comforting to realize that our work is not in vain and that the forces of righteousness will eventually prevail for all eternity. So whether you're a post-millennialist, pre-millennialist, amillennialist, in the end, the result is the same. His followers will be rescued. Friends, this morning, if you're struggling and you're feeling the pressure of others and you're tempted to deny your faith or to give up on your obedience to his word, be encouraged because Jesus says he's going to keep you. It may not be an easy passage, but Jesus will rescue you. Of that, we can be certain. Third, we see his reward. Jesus continues in verse 11, I am coming soon. The hymn with chorus, Hold the Fort, for I am coming, was written by P.P. Bliss, and it was suggested to him by an incident in the American Civil War. At Altoma Pass, the fort being held by General Course was besieged under the General Hood, who summoned it to surrender. Course refused to surrender. Many were the casualties. But in spite of the hopeless situation, the defenders remained faithful. Then, a white signal flag across the valley, some 20 miles away, waved the message, hold the fort, for I am coming. General Sherman was marching to the relief of the beleaguered and faithful defenders. So too Christ sent a message to the faithful church of Philadelphia saying, hold fast, for I am coming soon. 
He goes on then to identify three elements of this reward for his faithful followers. First of all, we see a crown, a crown. He says in verse 11 that no one may seize your crown. Crowns in this society were, were given out as a prize or reward during games and festivals for which the city of Philadelphia was well known. And Jesus says that his faithful servants will be given crowns at the judgment seat of Christ. They may be despised by the synagogue of Satan, but Christ will bestow honor upon them. Second, he's going to reward them with a position, a position. The text continues in verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Think about that. That symbolism would have been meaningful to the Philadelphians, to a people who lived in constant threat and danger of an earthquake. The stability of a pillar no need to leave the city anymore and hide in huts and a heavenly city that could never be destroyed would have been a tremendously comforting word to them. And what's more, the word for temple here refers to the holy of holies, which opens up further meaning for us in that the one who conquers will have a permanent place in the very presence of God Almighty. Third, Christ says he's going to reward them with a name, a name. I will write he says in the second part of verse 12, on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own name to a city that had lost its identity, to citizens who weren't sure who they were. Jesus says, I will permanently identify you with a new name because you haven't denied my name, my father's name, and the name of the new city in which you will one day reside will be written on you. No one will ever again wonder who you are or where you're from. If you continue in your outlines, finally, we see Jesus' loving reminders to his church. First, Jesus says in verse 11, hold fast. You've come this far, says Jesus. Keep your eye on the prize. The race isn't quite over. There's no early retirement in God's work. Hold fast. Keep on fighting. Stay on mission. Keep up the good fight. And second, Jesus says, hear his word. As has been the case with every other letter, Jesus closes with the same phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear. All those who hear this letter in the first audience, in the first century, and today alike, need to pay attention. We need to listen, and we need to apply what we hear. Let me close this morning by addressing three groups of people that I have a feeling we all could identify with one or the other. First, there are some of you here today who are weary. You've been faithful to the word, even though you feel as if you have little strength. Perhaps you're feeling pressured in the workplace to compromise your faith. Or maybe that pressure is at school the culture around you seems to be closing in, and you're not sure that you have the strength or the ability to continue to be obedient to God's word and to remain faithful to his name. If that's you this morning, you're not alone. 
Not only are you in good company with countless others who are experiencing the same weariness, but more importantly, Jesus has said he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. He'll bring you through this struggle. His strength is perfect when your strength is gone. His grace is sufficient. My friend, lean into your faith in the Savior who knows you personally and will hold you fast. Second, there are some of you here who have been obedient to his word, and you haven't denied his name, but you haven't been walking through doors of opportunity that God's putting in front of you. Chances are you know exactly who you are right now. God's been calling you to do something, and you keep walking right by that door. You don't want to be obedient. That was me two years ago. My wife and I were sitting in a service sometime in April, March, April time frame, I believe it was, and the pastor preached on adoption and caring for orphans. I've been fighting this calling for years, not wanting to walk through that door. In fact, I walked by it many times over and over again. But that Sunday, I knew I couldn't pass that door anymore. And when I was finally obedient and I stepped through that door, the joy and the fulfillment in that calling have been more than I ever could have asked or imagined. In the last year, we've had the privilege of fostering three children. We have two of them right now. And we're in the process of adopting one. Has it been easy? Absolutely not. Has there been pain along the way? Most certainly. I don't lift this as an example for you to, to say, that, wow, look at our preacher. He's a foster father. That's not my point at all. My point is to say that I fought that calling for years and years and years. And I finally had to stop walking past that door and walk through it. And I don't know what door you got in front of you this morning. Maybe it's foster care. Maybe it's missions work. I don't know where God's calling you. But if he's calling you, may I encourage you, don't pass that door any longer. Because when you walk through it, you will find abundant life beyond what you could imagine. And finally, there may be some here today who have never walked through the open door that Christ himself opens for you into his kingdom. Christ has never become for you the personal Savior of whom I speak. And if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to walk through that door today, to not waste another moment without him. The door was widely opened for you at the cross of Jesus Christ. My friend, enter through that doorway before death shuts it forever. Would you pray with me?